Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the War Games Orchard with Nathan and GJ. Bring back the breads. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. It's GJ, and I have to apologize before we start off for not releasing an episode last week. It's because I was rather busy with some real life stuff. Uh, you see, one of the responsibilities of having a time machine is that you sometimes have to go back in time to try and right some wrongs. Now, I did try to stop World War One and World War Two, but sadly, that would lead to other events that were just as bad or worse. Unfortunately, I did manage to turn World War 3 into just a Cold War. It was a bit of a difficulty with that whole Cuba thing, but I think I managed to pull it off with minimal casualties. Uh, no, well, of course, that's not the case. I was just uh, busy with real-life stuff getting in the way uh, the Easter weekend, which was a lot of fun, but also a very busy time. And currently, I'm also swamped with work, so that's the main reason you didn't get a podcast last week. But I am a little bit early for next week, so I hope that will make up for it. Let's go and see what's new in the old world in our news and hobby section. Not everybody needs a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing and it was everything that I thought it could be. Now unless you found yourself a nice cozy rock to lie under for the past week, you will probably have noticed there has been another old world update that has something to do with Bretonians and also with base sizes. I'm going to save uh, the best or the worst no, depending on how you look at it for last. And I'm going to start off with a little bit of regular hobby stuff. Due to the aforementioned saving of the world, I did not have much time to do my own hobby projects. I did print out some more models, I love playing with these 3D printers, also some models in preparation for finishing that uh, first edition scenario. I still need to paint two dwarfs with crossbows and then get some hobgoblins in. Uh, printing out the hobgoblins, uh, well not as we speak, but I've been doing that on and off for the past few uh, days, weeks, uh, for, for spent a little bit of time printing and tuning the printer and just uh, getting failed prints and trying to figure out what I'm doing wrong, which is a lot of fun, but also a bit, little bit frustrating at times. Most of my hobby time these past few weeks has been... Um, planning or for my planning and actually painting my um, uh, 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 sack of Rome Empire Halberdiers Regiment tribute. I don't think that's going to be the official title, but uh, well, if you are a little bit of a history buff, then you might know that on the sixth of May in fifteen twenty seven. Uh, some mercenary armies attacked the city of Rome and they tried to, uh, what did they, they plundered the city, they, uh, uh, they sacked it, they pillaged, they burned, and some more of those synonyms. 
uh, they also almost managed to kill the Pope, which would have been probably not so good for the whole political situation in Europe at the time. Uh, fortunately, the Pope managed to escape thanks to the Swiss Guard. And in order to commemorate that, I'm going to paint a regiment of Empire Halberdiers that is painted up in the colors of the Swiss Guard. I don't know what the uniforms were back in 1527, but I'm, I, I did a little bit of research, but I couldn't find any. So I'm just going to use the uh, colors that they have now, a bit of uh, yellowy orange and blue with some red details, uh, which also makes a perfect Nordland Halberdier regiment. I'm using mostly contrast, but it's still a bit of a pain to paint all those stripes on there and on those uniforms, especially when you're doing a batch of 42 models. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, I want to finish this regiment by May the 6th because of the date. And I had already planned to do that, but uh, to, to do that last year, but I, I, um, I, I didn't manage to get it done in time by then. So uh, I thought, well, let's do it this year also to commemorate or to celebrate, uh, depending on how you look at it, my return to the Catholic Church, which is still a little bit of a big deal in my personal life. Um, other than that, I also still have to paint some more beastmen and I have to make a zombie pirate that is an April Fool, because that's the painting challenge that we have on the Wargames Orchard. If you go to the Wargames Orchard Facebook group, you will see the challenge there. It's the April Fool's uh, challenge. Uh, we will not have a vote anymore. Uh, maybe we will reinstate that at a later point. But for now, it's just a pain challenge to uh, have people get creative, come up with silly little ideas, get silly backstories for their characters, and, well, just basically... Uh, get some stuff painted. Speaking of Facebook, there's been some more stuff happening, uh, going just from top to bottom, so so from most recent to least recent, usually. We get Jörn, uh, Jörn Huntler, he has uh, posted a few pictures of two dogs of war boxes. One is for his dryads, Dorothy's Delusional Dryads, and the other one is for Sir Darius spear-wielding swashbucklers. These regiments have been painted to an absolutely stunning standard. And with the terrain in the background, they are definitely... Um, they look very good with those uh, Dogs of War boxes. You are posted an, um, a little note in the Crown of Command Discord asking if somebody had Dogs of War boxes in reasonable shape. Uh, well, I have several in my collection, so I took some pictures, sent them over to Jörn, he did some Photoshop magic, and yeah, it just looks gorgeous, especially with his paint job there. So, uh, kudos and thanks for posting them. Uh, Jörn also put the file of the, uh, um, the, like the template in the file section of the Warhammer Orchard Facebook group. Uh, we have Olivia Marie Valmin, which I may or may not pronounce correctly, who posted up a Saigor for her Beastman army. Very well painted. It looks a lot better than my Saigor and Gorgon. Um, definitely spent a lot more time on that than I did. 
some very lovely pictures in there so please check it out as well um also by uh, Olivia a Doomball slash Minotaur Chieftain for the Beastmen. Uh, also painted to a very great standard. There's uh, a lot of semi-dried blood on the axe. Uh, apparently Minotaurs don't wash the, their axes very much. I think this... I'm not sure which miniature this is actually... At first, I thought it might have been a conversion from the uh, from the plastic set, but I think it might be a, a different miniature or a third party even. Um, I, I can't say for sure. It's not one that I recognize, and I also don't think it's the one that's on the GW site still for sale. So yeah, that's some stuff that has been happening in the Warhammer Orchard group. Um, I think that's mostly it for the hobby uh, so let's talk about news we have some news some noteworthy news from games workshop we're getting some new seraphon models well we already knew we got the models but we are getting a, uh, a release date for them you can order them from next saturday onward well i should say you can pre-order them from next saturday onward you can get an army set which gets you the Seraphon army book, some cards and some extras that you use for Age of Sigmar, uh, which you probably don't care about, but you also get a lot of models. It says 27 in the text, but I can only count to 21 looking at the picture. So either they are wrong or I am wrong, and since I am never wrong, I think Games Workshop can't count. What you get in the set is a set of 10 Saurus Warriors that you can assemble with either spears or hand weapons. You get two sets of five of the new uh, skinks on the feathered raptors. Um, they are called Raptodon Cavalry. They can be built as either chargers or hunters, uh, which probably have some different options and rules, but I honestly can't tell you what they are. I think one of them has javelins and the other one has uh, hand weapons, I think, from judging from the picture. I'm not sure there. So don't quote me on that one. And you get a new plastic slan. Now, these models you can easily uh, get for your Warhammer Lizardman army. If you are, if you want to do that, the skinks on cold ones they were not in use in sixth edition and later. Although I think maybe in the back of the book in sixth edition you had the Southlands list that listed skinks on cold ones, skink cavalry. But in fourth and fifth edition you could definitely field skinks on cold ones. So uh, this might be a nice addition to the lizardmen or a nice start for a lizardman army if you are looking for that i don't know yet what the price is going to be for this one maybe there are some current seraphon players that will be interested in the extra material because some of these things are only found in this box and if you have some lizardman players that already have that stuff and that play age of sigmar then i think you don't really uh, need the whole box and you can easily sell it off and get a little bit of your money back on that one you can probably also get these things uh, separately the um 
let's see here. Yeah, I I see here a picture of the ten source uh, warriors and the and five of the uh, skinks on the on the raptodons. Um, yeah, I think that's that's going to be a uh, one box set each, and then of course the slan is going to be his own thing. If you want to, you can get them separately. Well, that's basically it for Warhammer news, of course, except that we had a little bit of a Bretonia reveal. Uh, saving the best for last, the Old World Development Diary on Basis and the Barons of Bretonia. When I first read this, I th I had a, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration, but. Uh, I was both happy and not so happy at the same time. It started out good, started out happy, because we see some Bretonian models that look suspiciously like the plastic Bretonian knights that were around in 6th edition. Um, now, I'm not too intimately familiar with those knights. I have a couple of them that I painted up as grill knights, but uh, these are... Uh, these were already built, so I don't know exactly what's in the set, but judging from these images, they are exactly the same as these 6th edition plastic knights. So, we get some old sets that are coming back. Um, what we also get is uh, Man at Arms, which are the old plastic sets that are coming back. And I also see the Bretonian trebuchet and a lot of the Bretonian archers with the stakes. These are all the original 6th edition uh, plastics by the looks of it that are coming back. And when I take a look at what's in these pictures and what's in the text, there are a few things that are noticeable. One of them is the base sizes for the infantry that has been increased and I'll... If you haven't read it already, I'll, I'll get into a little bit of detail later to 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 say how you can, uh, I think, get around that if you want to do so. If I look at the picture, uh, if I don't know if you have the article in front of you, if you if you do, or maybe you already know it by heart, there's a picture of a Bretonian horse. That's the one with the big block of arches in the center and the trebuchet in the background. And in the front, you see goblin wolf riders. And these goblin wolf riders, I think they might be wolf riders. They might also be regular spearmen. But judging from their height, I think they are wolf riders. They are the 6th edition plastic kits as well. Now, would that mean that this goblin box is also coming back? Or that they just used the old miniatures uh, that they still had lying around somewhere? That would be interesting to know. Games Workshop has been known to do that in the past, where they um, take, for example, 5th uh, edition Chaos Warriors and they put them in the 6th edition book because these 6th edition plastics had not yet been released. We also see the Pegasus Knights, the plastics that also look exactly the same as what they were. So, if you have some Bretonian stuff that you have been sitting on just for the value, this is the time to sell it off. And if you have been looking to get some Bretonian stuff, but maybe haven't jumped the gun yet, hold out a little bit because these models are coming back. There's also an interesting thing to note with uh, regard to the last update. The last update showed us some helmets and shields. 
and also some sword arms. And I remarked back then that I found it a little bit curious for a knight unit to have uh, swords. However, then in this article we read that Bretonian knights can also be on foot. So this is a nudge back to, I believe, 3rd edition, because I think they disappeared in 4th, where you get Bretonian foot knights, a big block of Bretonian elite uh, infantry. That would be nice to have. I don't... Yeah, Bretonia is, is usually weak in the infantry and and um, very, very tough in the cavalry, although they also have weak cavalry, light cavalry, um, the uh, the mounted yeoman or the uh, what are they called the mounted squires I believe in fourth edition. So yeah, these if if those models also make a return, uh, then uh, that would make the Bretonian army a little bit more balanced and also a little bit more versatile. Uh, it says here the core of the army, knights of the realm on foot and mounted knights, errants, pegasus knights, and all peasant units. That's uh, what they are referring to. So yeah, we do get knights on foot apparently. And I have a a very strong feeling that those arms and, and weapons and uh, shields that we saw previewed and the helmets are for the Bretonian knights on foot. Um, I've seen a lot of speculation and a lot of reactions to these posts, but I don't think I've seen that one mentioned yet, so I don't know if I'm the only one that sees that, or if I just haven't looked good enough. I, I suspect the second one. But yeah, that's that's my, my guess here. Now, if you look at these pictures, the Bretonian knights have been painted up all in the same color scheme, all red and black. Which is the color scheme in this case of one of the dukedoms. Uh, this is the dukedom of, let me see here. Uh, I've got to look uh, for it real quick. But now I don't seem to be able to to find it. I know I know I read it somewhere, but it's one of the dukedoms, one of the 14 dukedoms. Um, so... This one, uh, this duke has a red and black heraldry. So the core of the army, the aforementioned units, also have red and black heraldry. Uh, these are painted in mostly the same way, but not all. There are some differences, like which parts of the armor and barding are red and or black. Uh, the shields on the... Uh, on, on the knights themselves, the actual shields, and also the shields that are on the, on the barding, the shield emblems on the barding, the heraldry, they've all got the same imagery, which is, um, if you look at it, like it's, it's, it's quartered, and the top left and bottom right quarters are red, and the top right and bottom left quarters are black, and there's a white axe transfer over them. Uh, so that's all the same, and then the one knight has red barding, the other one has uh, black barding, and the other one has a mix, and the same with the pennants on the lances and stuff like that. Um, the, the things on the, like little crests on top of the helmets, those little uh, little statuettes. Um, yeah, th there's some variation in that, but it's mostly red and black, and they say this is what we are going for in this time, in this edition. Um, 
The knights and peasants make that make up the army of Brion, oh, that's it, uh, Brion, apparently, are all proudly wear the heraldry of their duke. A white battle axe upon a quartered field of red and black, explains Rob, one of the designers. While in the past, Bretonian knights would have worn all uh, different heraldry, we wanted to convey the idea that most knights of the realm are minor nobles in the service of a great lord. This has the added benefit of giving the army a unified appearance on the tabletop. It goes on to say, elite units such as questing knights and grill knights may wear the colors of their general or they can each display their own heraldries. This freedom befits such noble heroes and gives fans the opportunity to explore different heraldries on a manageable number of models. And then it goes on to say, none of this means that old color schemes have gone away. We also plan to introduce rules for exile and crusade armies. This is this sounds interesting because I um, not only is this apparently a paint scheme suggestion, these armies get their own rules. The first allows fans to focus on dishonored knights, while the second focuses on the idea of glorious crusades that form when knights from all over Bretonia answer the call to undertake a quest. These schemes can be very colorful indeed, just like the classic Bretonian armies. So if you have a classic Bretonian army uh, like I do, I went for the 5th edition color scheme. There's a big break in both the lore and look and feel of the army between 5th and 6th edition. Uh, I went for the more noble uh, Arthurian Bretonia in 5th edition where each knight has his own heraldic designs. And the peasants are painted up in the colors of uh, one of the heroes in my army. Uh, so going with that, I um, I apparently have now a, a crusade army, um, which as a uh, new revert to Catholicism uh, may or may not be a good idea depending on how you look at it. So I think there's probably nothing in the rules, especially in friendly games, that would stop you from playing with your crusade army as a regular army or as an exile army. But I'm curious to see where this is going. Now, that they are focusing on Bretonia as one of the first armies also leads me to believe that this is going to be one of the starter box armies. Probably alongside Tomb Kings because that one has also received a lot of focus. Um, there has been one picture of an orc in the recent articles. An orc archer and an orc boar. No, it was just an, just an orc boar boy, I believe. And other than that, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's not much. Uh, yeah, and of course, on these goblins here in this picture with the battle scene. Uh, we also see in the looking at the pictures and looking at the terrain, what definitely seems to be the old uh, Warhammer plastic uh, fortress. That the, the square towers from the fortresses have been used that have been integrated into some terrain pieces. So I'm curious to see if this is going to be a re-release or if this is going to be something that's just put in here for the pictures and does not have any value in the real game whatsoever. Now, we are looking at the... Uh, I, I said when I started this section that uh, I, at first I was excited and then I got a little bit less excited. And the less excited part has to do with basing. These... Uh, peasants in the Bretonian army are all on 25mm square bases. 
And when I saw that, I thought, yeah, sod it. I'm not going to rebase all of my armies. I'm probably then just going to play the old editions, not going to play this edition. Um, and then I thought to myself, whoa, GJ, wait up a little bit. That's not very fair. Now, I'm not one that likes change. I don't like things to change. But I can probably get used to this. And there is something to say for putting your models on bigger bases. Because as Games Workshop have also noticed, as a lot of the fans have noticed, especially if you have things that go on 20mm bases, uh, because of the poses, they get sometimes a little bit difficult to rank up. What you ideally want is that no part of your model sticks out over the edges of your base, or if it sticks out, that it then goes uh, next to or over one of the other models, which can be a little bit fussy when ranking stuff up. Now, getting stuff on bigger bases means that you have more room for your models, for more dynamic poses. Uh, it gives you a little bit more of a breathing room. And that is uh, a good thing, actually. I think it's a very good thing. But also, if you have an existing army like I do, or if you still intend to play the older editions, which I don't intend to stop playing, then there will be a number of different base sizes. And one of the reasons I said to myself, GJ, stop and think, is that uh, this is not the first time that this has happened. This might be the first time that this has happened on such a massive scale. But if I think back to, for example, uh, the Beastman that I am painting, now that I have been painting, you get uh, Angors, and Angors were on 20mm bases in 4th edition and 5th edition. Then in 6th edition, they were changed to 25mm bases to fit in with those Beast Herds where you got Gors and Angors combined. And then in 7th edition, they moved back to 20mm bases. So what I'm doing now is I'm painting a mix of Angors on different size bases. I'm doing some on 25 with spears and I'm doing some on 20 with spears and the ones with bows, they all go on 20. So yeah, there's not really much of a of a problem there. And also if you look at the size of the monster bases, um, in 4th edition and 5th edition most monsters came on 40 mil bases. And even though they came on 40 more bases, I still put my 5th edition dragons and giants and stuff like that on 25, uh, uh, sorry, 40 more bases. I put them on 50 more bases. So, yeah, that's not really a, a, a problem for me. This does definitely a workaround. And some workarounds have already been suggested in the community. If you, for example, go to uh, Cults3D, which is a website that hosts. Uh, 3D printing files, STLs for uh, all kinds of stuff that have, has also a lot of things to do with Warhammer. You can for 5 euros download a set of uh, STLs for bases, for movement trays, which have, uh, they range from I believe 5 by 3 to 10 by 3 trays, uh, 8 by 5, 8 by 4, 7 by 4, 5, 6. So, so whatever you need, you can get in that in that set over there. Um, and, and then, of course, if you need more, then you just uh, print out more and you combine them in whatever way you want to. So that's definitely something that I'm going to get. And... I don't even know if I'm going to get that straight away. I'll probably get the SD Alpha, but I'm probably not going to start printing that straight away. Because when you look at the 
article or the section on basing on the warmer community article contains some Q&As. The first question, are the models getting bigger? No, the new models will be the same in scale as returning range from warmer fantasy battle. The base size change has come out because the uh, 90s and 2000 models became difficult to rank up. And if you've ever assembled, for example, uh, the plastic Phoenix God on 20 more bases with those billowing cloaks, then yeah, you have to agree they are difficult to rank up. Then the next question is, do I need to rebase my old army? And then it says, if you're playing at home, there will be no requirement to rebase anything. For casual play, the size of the base will make a minimal difference to gameplay. And indeed it will, because it will probably be mean that one, maybe two models more or less get to fight on one of the two sides. So um, if that's what, what decides your game, then... Uh, well, then, then the armies are very closely matched, of course, but yeah, that's, that's, that's probably not going to be a decisive factor in any game. So, um, if you do want, if you don't want to rebase your models, then it says you are welcome to pop them onto a movement tray with the right footprint. Uh, movement trays are a useful tool anyway, because if your army is on the right base size, it's be, as it speeds up. Uh, gameplay so basically games works by saying use movement trays uh, which is what we most of us have been doing since we started playing anyway so um for casual play it doesn't matter if you want to go to official games workshop play you have to make sure that your uh, models are on either the correct base size um, it says here you might want to upgrade to larger bases if you plan to play competitively um, but if you don't want to do that you just pop them onto movement trays now i've been thinking um and, and yeah I'm, I, I'm, I'm probably not going to do this because i'm not a competitive player but just to spite games workshop i've been looking at the website of one of the dutch hardware stores and you can buy tile spacers these are those little crosses that you put between tiles when you put them on the wall so that they are all aligned correctly and then afterwards you take them out and you you fill it up with uh, with crowd so that uh, the uh, the lines between the tiles get uh, filled up there are tile spacers that have the exact five millimeter uh, width now, if you plan to use those in a unit, then you still need to put a an edge around the unit or something around the unit of two and a half millimeter. Uh, maybe just cut some of those tile spaces in half just to make sure that the edges are correct as well. But uh, yeah, put in those tile spaces. A, a bag of 200 of the things cost you four euros at a... Um, at a Dutch hardware store, and you can probably get them cheaper off of uh, some some knockoff Chinese websites. Uh, Two hundred of those things. Just put one of those cross in between every four bases. Uh, cut some of them up so that they form edges and corners, and yeah, you're good to go. Um, it it looks probably not very professional, but 
yeah that's the whole idea let let's let's make it look not very professional just to show games workshop we are not going to rebase our armies that we spent a lot of time on getting on a crack basis and lining up so uh, maybe you want to do that if you want to play competitively maybe you don't want to do that because you're not as spiteful as i am uh, but anyway yeah that's uh, that's basically it for this article uh you can, it says, uh, you can still take your old army, Let, let's just finish the Q&A, you can still take your old armies to organize play events, uh, but you have to make sure they are probably brave, so talking becomes difficult apparently, they have to be properly based uh, or on an appropriate movement tray, so that's allowed, tile spaces are allowed, Games Workshop is saying here, well, at least that's what I'm reading between the lines. And the last question is, will we be able to buy bases? And the answer is yes, all models, including returning models, will be supplied with the correct sized bases and will also be selling bases and movement trays. So yeah, there you have it. Um, Bretonia plastics are returning. We haven't yet seen all of the Bretonian range. Uh, we have seen the, the hint at what I expect to be the foot knights. Well, we so far we've only seen plastics. We've not seen any any metal miniatures. Um, or well, yeah, they are probably going to be fine cast anyway. But uh, I know that's, that's not true. The trebuchet, the trebuchet was already in fine cast. But uh, yeah, the trebuchet is the uh, the same one, and um, the rest are the uh, plastic box sets. One final thing to note, I can't believe I glossed over this, is that the knights in the pictures are in the classic 5th edition lance formation. And that makes me very happy because it looks so much better than what they had in 6th edition. Now the archers are not in an arrowhead formation. That's not to say they can't be in an arrowhead formation, but because they are lined up behind the stakes, they, um, they are probably not in an arrowhead formation for game purposes here or for display purposes um they might still get that rule they might not i don't know it was rather um rather rather strong to have the entire unit shoot and get an extended front uh, made bretonian archers rather um rather aggressive compared to the uh, other archers so i'm not sure they're going to do that the lance formation looks exactly the same as what it did in 5th edition. One knight in front, two behind that, three behind that. Uh, the banner is going in the front, then the champion and the musician form the second rank. I think that's a little bit different than what it was in 6th edition, though I'm not sure, because in 6th edition you probably also had to put the standard in the center. So, um, yeah, that makes me very happy. This lance formation looks a lot better than the uh then then the, just the, the three wide and uh go however deep you want in uh, in sixth edition did so um, this is uh this is definitely a, a good development i just hope it's not simply for display purposes that they did this i can't imagine that they did this although on the other hand it is games workshop so maybe yeah, i can imagine uh, what we also see here is that the knights are in two blocks of six, and the knights in sixth edition were into uh, were eight to a box. 
I'm not sure if that's a going to be a thing here that you only can buy them in boxes of six now. I'm not sure how that would work with the spruce. As like as I said, I, I didn't get them back in the day. But I think those knights were fought to a sprue back in 6th edition. So if they're going to use exact same sprues, then you probably will get units of 8 um, or maybe 2 boxes. And then you get 1 unit of eight, uh, one unit of 10 and 1 unit of 6. I think that would be a good call to do. Um, yeah, it makes me very excited for what else is to come and what else is going to be released. Alright, jumping all the way back from a new edition that's not yet out to an old edition that's been out for over 40 years. Well, it is 40 years this year. I mean, Games Workshop have got a whole thing about 40 years of Warhammer. Let's jump back to 1983 for the last time before we continue on to 1984 in a future episode. Let's all jump into the time machine. We are going to the tail end of 1983, the time that the rock band KISS performed without makeup and costumes for the first time, just proving what a wild and lawless time this actually is. Welcome back to 1983 everybody. We are going to take a look today at three white dwarves that have been released in the second half of 1983. Each of them has a, an article dedicated to first edition Warhammer Fantasy. If you want to go to your own collection or maybe find them online and read along, these are White Dwarf number 43, 45 and 48. These issues were released in June, August and December respectively. Now just going back to these old issues or in my case just looking at these old issues of White Dwarf for the first time, it, it takes you to I think it's basically a whole different world or a whole different universe. It's so completely not unlike the White Dwarfs from the later era. Um, the White Dwarfs that were around in, in the what you might call the true Warhammer era. Because in these days it was just a role-playing magazine that had adverts for a lot of things. Dungeons and Dragons, AD&D. Uh, Middle Earth, I see something about uh, Starfleet battles, a lot of games that I've never heard of, also some adverts for game shops. Looking at this first issue, we're taking a look at uh, White Dwarf 43. There's an issue, for, an, an advert for the Warlord Games Club, uh, Games Shop. 
in uh, in the UK in uh, Lay on Sea, which I'm not sure I pronounced correctly because English names are a little bit difficult. A lot of addresses there, and please, if you look at these adverts, don't look at the prices because the prices they just make you want to roll up in a fetal position and cry a little bit. Um, going to the first of these magazines, White Wolf 43, the first one that we are going to discuss today, you hear me scrolling furiously, and that's because um, there is a... Uh, oh, where is it now? Have I passed it already? Uh, there is an... an, an uh, uh, f- first you get in these magazines a lot of, of, of adverts and then of these pages of adverts you get the index where is it ah here we are uh, the index and then in the index you get some features and some departments the features are uh, basically as far as I can tell uh, deep dives uh, single issue features into some of these games there's a little bit about uh, Cthulhu now. Uh, something uh, there's a fiction story in there. Uh, another one about an AD and D city, and then you get the departments, which are the uh, regulars that come back every issue. And the first of these departments is one that we're going to look at, which is Open Box. Uh, open Box is yeah I, I did scroll past it the first time. Open Box is an um, uh, a feature which in, in which independent reviewers uh, take the lid off of some current games. At least that's what the subtitle for this feature says. And in this uh, White Wolf Forty Three, the first of the lid that comes off is uh, Warhammer and then you also get one for Quest World and the tribes of Crane uh, there's Critical Mass is there, I think that's going to be the next feature, Critical Mass which has the very interesting title uh, Zapping Uri Geller um, yeah okay maybe I should I should read through these at some point just to just to see what a wild time this actually is but for, for now we are just going to look at the review of Warhammer and um, this review is done by a gentleman called uh, where did I see his name his name is in there I know his name is in there I saw it when I read it through yesterday but now I see, can't seem to find it anymore. That's odd. Uh, Alright, maybe we come across it. Um, the review, I'm not going to read it out fully. It starts off just by giving you an overview. And there are some interesting things to note here. Because apparently this, this gentleman... Um, whose name I'm going to find in a little bit. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to scroll to White Dwarf 45, scroll past the ads. I should have kept this open, but I closed my PDF viewer thingy, so then I. Um, let's see, page 28, that is. Uh, so, so then I, I missed it. Uh, um, then I had to reopen them again, and I didn't do that. In, far enough in preparation of this. Uh, 
uh, podcast. This uh, review is done by a gentleman by the name of Joe uh, Dever or, or Dever. Um, Joe, I'm just going to call him Joe. I have I, I have no idea. Oh yeah, now I see his name here as well. Uh, I have no idea if it, uh, who he is. is not a name that sounds familiar, but I'm not one of those guys who knows everybody in the scene. So I don't know if uh, if Mr. Joe is still around, uh, still uh, playing or anything. Um, on the off the chance that you are listening to this, Joe, uh, thanks for your review 40 years ago of this game, because now we got something to talk about. And also, thanks to Joe for the thing that we're going to talk about next, which is the article in White Wolf 45, which is a scenario uh, by this same Joe uh, Dever, Dever, um, yeah, uh, Mr. Joe. So, uh, Warhammer, this box set, uh, please don't cry, costs £5.95 pence. If you go and look for it online, I've seen them list on eBay for upwards of £200. So if you bought a couple back in the day, then now you are probably um, able to sell them off. I don't think they sell for those prices, but yeah, let's say they do, then it would have been a better investment than Bitcoin, probably. Well, maybe not that good, but yeah. Um, definitely a, a, a big increase there. Uh, Warhammer comprises an attractive box package of three rulebooks that make up the basis for a system of mass combat fantasy role-playing. The review begins. Authors Brian Ansel, Rick Priestley and Richard Hallowell have combined their individual talent for producing excellent rule systems and have attempted to satisfy the need for a realistic yet playable set of fantasy wargame rules. And uh, what's interesting here is that according to this reviewer, um, they have not thought of all of these rules all by themselves because they've just basically picked and chosen the best things that were around in previous games. So Mr. Joe goes on to say, Ansel has used his laser burn initiative system in uh, laser burners is uh, in italic, so I guess that's not a game system. Uh, in determining which troops strike first, and then you get to hit and to kill rolls. And uh, this, uh, th- those are similar to Mr. Hallowell and Priestley's Reaper fantasy rule system, which I've used for the past five years for all of my own fantasy war gaming. So yeah, that's uh, that's something interesting that I didn't know. Um, the article then goes on to describe what's in the books, uh, which I'm not going to read out because while well, we spend a lot of time in the past two podcasts to discuss those, um, it is interesting to look at how Mr. Joe scores this game. He says he ends his review with, if you regularly wargame with miniatures or have been wondering what additional fun you could have from your rapidly growing collection of fantasy figures, which of course we all have a rapidly grown collection of fantasy figures, then I recommend you check out Warhammer and let battle commands. He gives the following points, and I guess this is this is uh, out of 10, so it doesn't say so, but uh, uh, he gives an 8 for rules, an 8 for playability, a 7 for skill, a 9 for enjoyment, and an 8 for complexity for an overall of an 8. 
I'm not sure how he would compare this to later editions, but yeah, um, I was happy back in high school if I got an 8 for anything. So uh, this review even more makes me want to check out this game system. It might not be very good compared to later editions, especially considering that this was released in 1983 and then in 1984 you got an expansion called Forces of Fantasy, which we're going to talk about a little bit next time and the White Dwarfs leading up to that. And uh, then also in 1984 you already had the second edition of Warhammer Fantasy. So first edition was not very long-lived, only a year or so, maybe a little bit more than a year. I'm not quite sure when it was released, but yeah, seeing as there is a, a review of a current game in June and uh, Warhammer 2nd Edition, according to my publication timeline Excel sheet that I've been making in preparation for this, is, I think, somewhere in 1984. Well, that is somewhere in 1984, but I'm not sure exactly when in 1984. July saw Forces of Fantasy, so I'm guessing this is maybe a couple of months later. So let's say in the fall or uh, or winter of 1984 that second edition was released. So yeah, a little over a year that... Um, oh no, wait, Forces of Fantasy I see here in in, in March, so... Maybe it was then, yeah, also in the summer. Let's, let's say summer or fall of 1984. I'll give it the correct date when we when we get to there. Um, so yeah, that's uh, it, it only lasted for, for one year. And if all people are like Joe and give this game such high marks, then I'm not sure um, what, <laughs> maybe what the other games of the era were like or... Uh, yeah, what what maybe if Joe was a little bit biased because uh, second edition came along very soon after this. All right, let's leave Mr. Joe's review for what it is and let's take a look at the scenario he devised. There's a scenario in White Dwarf 45, which was August 1983, and this scenario is uh, it's called Thistlewood. Um, the article starts with a map of the area and uh, there's a church with a graveyard and then there's a, a road, a furlough road that runs alongside the church and it crosses Market Way and on the side of Market Way there are in total seven cottages, there's a little side road and a bridge that leads to a tower um, sorry, to a tomb, that's a different T. There's a river going there, the Thistlebrook. There are some hills over there. One of the hills has a watchtower on it. And there's also apparently a, uh, there's a well. Let's see what else is there. There's some walls. There should be a wizard's tower, WT. I don't see it on the map. Oh, that's, that's a wizard's tower, not watchtower. All right, maybe I should look at the map uh, first. And uh, it's, it's divided into squares, and each square is 12 yards, which makes some of these cottages uh, rather smallish. But yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's still um, in line with what a medieval fantasy setting would have. 
So, uh, there's some, some forests there, there's some rough ground markings, uh, a nice detailed map that uh, gives you the setting of, of this play area. This scenario, in the introduction it says, is designed for Warhammer Mars Battle Adventures for 2, 4 or 6 players plus 1 umpire. The ideal playing area is 8 by 4 feet in size, which is an average table tennis table, but this can be reduced so long as the relative positions of troops and scenery remain the same. Dungeon floor plans should be used when fighting occurs within buildings. It is recommended that an area away from the main table is used to resolve this sort of action. Figures enter buildings on the table, transfer them to the floor plans and resolve the searches and encounters there giving you both a massive combat uh, game because if you look at the picture that's in there black and white picture it shows you uh, two setups of battle lines that well, one, one setup of the village with two battle lines and, and that looks like any old Warhammer fantasy battle with stuff on square bases facing off um, and with a village and, 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 and scenery on the table over there. A great looking scenery, by the way. I, uh, um, I wish I could, I could see this picture in full color. Um, so you then get, when you get into these buildings, you transfer immediately to a skirmish style game where, uh, when you go, you, you teleport off of the main table to a side table where those floor plans are. So you do need a little bit of, of space over here, both the table tennis table and some other um, play areas for the for the floor plans of the buildings. Uh, each player can position any or all of his army up to 12 inches away from his baseline start of the game, anywhere as long as its entire length, uh, along its entire length. If reserves are being held back for use later, the player must inform the umpire at the start of the game exactly which game move and area of the table he wants them to enter. They may only enter on the player's baseline. Then we get the scenario. Foro Malice, an accomplished thief of a foreign guild, has successfully stolen the legendary golden chalice of Landmar, reputedly the most securely guarded treasure of King Amias's rich kingdom. The king has mobilized his army to hunt and capture the thief and to restore the holy relic to the cathedral altar before the news of its disappearance becomes widespread. From snatches of information, the king has deduced that the thief is hiding in the small northern village of Thistlewood. Lord Vasago, evil necromancer and ruler of the king's neighboring Northlands, has learned of the theft and is anxious to intercept the thief on his flight from the king. He has also discovered that Foro Malice is hiding in Thistlewood and that the king is less than one day away. But Fasago is determined to capture the chalice despite his risk of a costly battle. The relic is reputed to have great magical properties. Should it fall into the hands of Fasago, the security of the entire kingdom would be jeopardized as he would be able to command great power and influence over its populace. Victory Objective. The objective of the game for both players is to locate the challenge and return it to their baseline. The first player to do so is the winner. Then we get a little bit about the army lists. I'm not going into detail here, but you get the uh, king's army, which uh, comprises of uh, the king and a baron, 
And then there is a unit of Imperial Guards, some Royal Centaurs, Pikes, Swords, Maces. And then we have some Half Elves and Dwarves and a Cavalry unit. And then there's also uh, a, a, a level 4 Bishop with some Spells and Talismans. There are no points values listed here, but uh, which is something I noted as well in the first edition book. Uh, so I'm not sure how fair and balanced these armies will be. But what we do see here is that the um, the armies, the number of figures in the units, they are uh, divided into three sections. Um, first is if you are playing a small game, and then if you're playing a medium game, and if you're playing a large game. So for example, uh, Baron Galen's Cavalry, is uh, 10 figures in a small game, 20 in a medium game, and 30 in a large game. So, yeah, that's basically uh, how big of a game do you want to play. And there are some special rules for the King's Army. Uh, Thistlewood is a sleepy northern border town. It owes its allegiance to Baron Gallen, a loyal and courageous noble. The mayor of Thistlewood is a wizard by the name of Polius, who resides in a tower on the east of town. Although magic is treated with suspicion and contempt in the kingdom, Old Polius is respected and, beloved, uh, and loved by the townsfolk, as his arcane skills have on many occasions defended them from bandit raids and plague. The population uh, number, uh, number roughly 60, of which 65% are women and children. Uh, some special notes here, King Amias Berengelen and Bishop Melendon are all immune to the effects of fear and terror. The king possesses an enchanted blade that gives him plus two strength um, to encounter full effect against undead gods and demon types. Baron Gellin has suffered a serious head wound several years ago that sometimes affects him in combat. Then we get a random table, which is fun. When involved in base to base combat, throw a percentile dice and consult the following chart prior to making a throw to hit. He might get double vision, which is minus 6 to weapon skill. He might get nausea, minus 4 to weapon skill. Dizziness, minus 2 to weapon skill. There's a 50% chance that it has no effect. And there's also something that he can have is weakness of the arms, minus 1 to strength. Um, he can have weakness of legs, which is half of his movement for 1d6. I guess that's 1d6 turns. He can be enraged, plus 1 to strength, and he can even go berserk on a 5% chance, which is plus 2 to strength. If he goes berserk, he will always attack friend and foe alike for 1d6 rounds, during which time he is controlled by the umpire. When the effect wears off, he will collapse uh, unconscious for 1d6 rounds. So yeah, that's a nice little thing there. Um, might be something you want to uh, incorporate in your your own friendly game. Taking a look at Lord Vasago's army, um, it's uh, it's an undead army. He's got some characters uh, which are a little bit difficult to pronounce. Naarsh, which is I don't know exactly what it is. Let's see here. Uh, he looks a little bit like a like a chaos champion or something like that. Not quite sure. Uh, oh, wait, here, here it says in the special notes, Naarsh is an armed under champion specter. 
Uh, he controls skeletons and must be within 12 inches to operate them. He uses a poisoned two-handed weapon, which causes paralysis, as does his touch. Then you got Ungrash Ka, is the hill giant leader of the vile rune tribe of orcs. And he is subject to frenzy. A bit of feud exists between Ungrash Ka and the trolls. They are also trolls. Unless they remain at least 24 inches apart, they will attack each other, even if it means breaking off combat with the enemy to do so. That's a nice rule. Uh, the vile rune orcs will not attack a unit unless they outnumber them by at least one and a half to one. They will attack elves in preference to other troop types. The black sun gobos, uh, goblins are subject to terror if within 24 inches of wyverns, who inhabit the same mountain region as the goblins where they are their main source of food and recreation. That's also a fun rule. You, you are afraid of your own troops here in this, in this game, in this scenario. The Black Orc Orcs are an elite fighting orc tribe who will attack dwarves in preference to other troop types and the Pack Wolves are a semi-intelligent and independent unit under Visago's control. They will attack horses in preference to other troop types. So there's a lot of bookkeeping here, um, which is fun if you're an evil player I guess. Lord Visago controls his personal bodyguards, the Ghouls, and they can operate up to 48 inches away from him. Sago has the ability to raise dead second level necromancy spell within the boundary of the church graveyard. So, um, yeah, I think we mentioned everything here. We get skeletons, ghouls, pack wolves, and then we get the black sun goblins, the vile rune orcs, and the black uruks. We get trolls and a wyvern, and we get Naarsh and Ograshka, the uh, hill giant, and the, um, and the undead specter. And Lord Fasago, of course, level 4 wizard. So I think these forces are rather evenly matched, at least in terms of, of characters. I'm, I, I can't really say about uh, about units. Uh, it, it does give you some options here because it says that no more than 25% of the total army should be armed with missile weapons. Then there is a uh, an umpire's guide on the next page. Which I'm not going to read out just in case somebody wants to play this game and I don't want some spoilers. But there, there are things like what is in each cottage and some advice to the umpire, what's in the church, stuff like that. Looks like an interesting scenario. I'm not sure. I might even try to see if I can get some some models to play the, um, the, the small game together. Uh, some models together to play the small game. So um, I, I know I do have enough cottages. I have something that I can use as a church. I got some walls. I got I got a tower. I got some hills. So I might need to make some roads and some bridges. But but other than that, uh, I think I have most of the stuff that's on the table here. So let's take a look at the units. Um, a human king, a human baron. Probably on foot. I've got some Bretonian knights on foot that I can use for that. Imperial guards. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. We, we can maybe use grave. Uh, uh, what are they? Great swords. Royal centaurs. That's a little bit more difficult. I don't have any centaur models. But well, maybe uh, centaur is an is an uh, gener generic enough unit that you can probably get some three D prints for that. Uh, King's Pike Regiment, well, I've got Docks of War Pikemen, not all painted, and I can put in some Spearmen. Uh, Swords Regiment, Empire Swordsmen, Mace Regiment, that's going to be a little bit more difficult as well. 
Um, maybe substitute it for something with with flails like flagellants, or uh, just just substitute in something and say that they have maces. And I can't really think of anything that has the option to equip a full regiment with maces. There are some maces in the Chaos Warrior set that you can use, probably. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. I, an, apart from converting, how you would go about this. Uh, loyal half-elves, I'd say basically use any unit of elves and say that half of their parents were humans. Uh, loyal dwarves, any type of dwarves, and cavalry. I'm sure if you play either Empire or Bretonia, you can get some cavalry together. Uh, a bishop, I think a warrior priest would be a good choice for that one. Although he is armored, um, you might just take a wizard lord uh, as well. Maybe a light wizard or something like that. They look a little bit religious. Then for the undead army, uh, pack wolves, you can use dire wolves. Or if you have wolf riders, use them without the goblins on top. Uh, ghouls are ghouls, skeletons are skeletons, goblins are goblins, orcs are orcs, black uruks, I'm sure that we can get some black orcs for that. Trolls, yeah, a couple of trolls, river trolls, stone trolls, uh, there's not too much of a problem there. Uh, the wyvern has been around since forever. And then you've got the, uh, the specter, which is, well, is it, this is basically a walking suit of armor, I think. Because the spectre itself is not really visible. So if you take, let's say, Chaos Warrior with a, with a great weapon or a halberd. Um, I think that's something that you could use. And then the only thing that you might have to be a little bit creative about is the... Uh, what was it, the hill giant or the half giant? Yeah, the hill giant. Well, it's not even a half giant. Well, if it's a hill giant, then you can, I think, just use regular giant. Would be fun to use that one as a character. He's got a movement of six, so we yeah, have web skill of three, ballistic skill of three, bow skill of three, I should say. Strength of four, toughness D, so he's a little bit weaker than your regular giant. Four wounds, mischief three, two attacks. Yeah, movement six, uh, same as the trolls. I'd say anything on a on a regular as a regular giant you can use. So um, basically, apart from the centaurs. Anything, yeah, and, and the mace, uh, what are the, the mace regiments? Anything that's in here can be supplied from recent or current kits. So, if you want to play the scenario, it's not too difficult to do that with, um, with current models and. Especially when you take a look at the numbers for the the lowest on the lower end of the scale. I mean, if you want to do it on the higher end of the scale, you need uh, a unit of 50 orcs and 20 black orcs and 25 skeletons. If you use the, the lower end, you need just 5 black orcs, 30 orcs, 30 goblins, uh, 10 skeletons, 5 ghouls, 10 pack wolves. And for the... Uh, you only need three centaurs, three imperial guard, and ten of each of all the rest of the non-character uh, units in the human army. So those those numbers are not too far out. Uh, I love that the person who designed this, Mr. Joe, he um, got all those miniatures together. He painted them up. There, there's some some banners that have been painted in the. Uh, 
uh, I think to go with the scenario even something with with well, there are some rules runes on it on the on the black orcs the black orcs I'm I'm not quite sure what they say but uh, might be something to do with uh, at first I thought it was something to do with 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 Vasago or or Ukrashka or something but now that I look at them again, I think no, that's not what it can say. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the second white dwarf we are looking at today. A nice scenario here. Um, the plot itself, it's it's not too far out. It's, it's not wow. Well, it may, maybe a little bit cliche. Uh, an item, two armies, both looking uh, looking for the item. Maybe it wasn't cliche in in back in eighty three, but. Uh, yeah, this is a plot that has been used uh, several times. Um, it, it's uh, uh, maybe not this exact plot with a, with a thief and two opposing armies clashing to find the thief uh, in, in one of the buildings and then making off with the treasure. But yeah, a, a particular artifact, uh, of course, Lord of the Rings comes to mind as, as one of the most influential pieces of fantasy with a similar themed plot where uh, one side tries to take the ring to Mount Doom to destroy it and the other side tries to take the ring to Sauron to rule the world. So uh, may maybe not that original an idea but still something that's nice enough to play a game over and well, not all historical battles were for original reasons, uh, so why should all fantasy battles be for original reasons or original ideas? As long as you have fun, as long as you uh, like the story, I think you can enjoy this battle. So, yeah, it would be, um, uh, would be a nice thing to to play or to see play. I don't know if anybody in the audience, in the Wargames Orchard audience, is planning on doing some first edition. Uh, if you do, please uh, take it to the Facebook group or to the Crown of Command Discord, where we also have a section, and show it over there. Let's move on to the final White Dwarf for 1983, and the final White Dwarf that covers something to do with the Warhammer 1st Edition core set. White Dwarf number 48, uh, December 1983. It's the same setup. First you get a lot of advertisements and uh, you get a list of miniatures that are two, one pound, two pounds, some, some going up to six, seven, eight pounds each. Um, a boxed rune set for rune quests, quest £7.90. Uh, please, Games Workshop, thanks for bringing back all the models for Britonia, but please also bring back the older prices. Uh, let's look at this set, and there's a feature in here that has something to do with Warhammer Fantasy. This feature is written by none other than Mr. Rick Priestley himself, and this feature is called Stomp. Rules for Giants in Warhammer. It starts off with a fallen giant with his legs spread out and his arms spread out. And there are some nice little details about us. There's some loose chains and all of these are labeled. 
There's for some reason a bowling ball that has fallen out of his pocket. There's a jar of old stoat gargle, which is of course empty. And there is a little red blotch, which has the label Unfortunate Hobbit. So yeah, giants can fall over. The article starts off with a random generation table. If you roll 1 to, th 1 to 30 on a uh, D100, you get a small giant, which has a movement of 6, web skill and bow skill of 3, strength of 4, toughness D, web skill, uh, sorry, wounds 4, initiative 3 and 2 attacks. He's got the basic weapon club, he's got armor and he's got a points value of 50. Say, you have points values here. That's, uh, that's a new one. I, I might, might have completely overlooked it, but I can't remember seeing anything about points values up to this point in, uh, no pun intended, in Warhammer 1st edition. Uh, so this small giant is, is the, it's got the same profile as the uh, giant leader from the previous White Wolf article. If you roll a 31 to 65, you get a giant which has movement 7, a 1 point up, uh, same web skill, blizzard skill, strength on its profile. The toughness has gone up from D to E. It's gained two wounds. It lost one point of initiative and it also gained two attacks. Uh, it's got the same basic weapon, a club, and the armor is also yes. And it got a points value of 120. Now it gets really interesting when you roll a 66 to double zero, 66 to 100. Because then you get a true giant. And the profile for a true giant is a series of asterisks, um, because a true giant has to be generated. So yay, a table that leads to another table. It's also got a club and armor and it costs you 380 points. Many of the larger humanoid creatures of Warhammer live solitary and isolated lives or live in small roving groups. Often these creatures are handicapped by stupidity or psychopathic criminality and for these reasons, giants cannot really be considered as armies. But they often band together with other evil types to assault pa passing merchants and traveling parties. One popular trick, developed by an unusually bright giant, concerns the military use of the giant pitching ball, a huge sphere of lead used by giants to play giant skittles. This game, this is a game which requires great strength and a dozen captive travelers, preferably dwarfs. So yeah, that's uh, that explains the bowling ball. Uh, special provisions. Players may select any of the three types of giant described above, either the small giant giant or the largest kind, the true giant. Because giants are so diverse, a race, a race, the characteristics for the large type may be very variable. So there we get into the true giant generation section which is at the end of the article so we'll get to it. Giants carry a club or similar massive weapon. Large swords may carry one or two huge spheres of lead to drop on or bow at their enemies. They may bow or drop balls of metal uh, which is one of their special rules. A giant may attempt to bow one ball at a regiment up to 18 inches away of course, there's always a chance uh, that the missile will miss altogether, either not reaching the target or veering off at an angle. The giant picks his exact target spot and bowls the ball. The player then rolls the dice to see how far the ball goes. 3d6 for, uh, for the balls on level, 
1d6 for balls uphill and 4d6 for balls downhill. Balls passing over rivers, bogs or trenches get stuck. Balls passing over hedges lose 1d6 inches of range and balls passing through woods or over low walls lose 2d6 inches of range. Mark the target's point of the ball and then roll for accuracy. That's a d10 for right swerve in inches and a d10 for left swerve in the same way. Now you should know where the ball strikes. Balls hitting a regiment go straight through their bolt to their bolt distance. If the ball will strike any units in its path, uh, and sorry, the ball will strike any units in its path, and may even pass through one unit and hit another one behind it. Each ball causes 1d6 automatic hits at strength 3. Troops in skirmish order or units of less than 10 models can try to dodge the ball. Um, to simulate this, they get a plus one on their saving throw, uh, which with a minimum of six. So um, I can't help but notice that it is a very nice coincidence that we get an article about giants rolling balls in the same podcast episode as we get an article about knights in lance formation. Um, make of that what you wish. The giant may also drop the metal ball onto combat opponents who are man-sized or smaller in any combat round instead of attacking normally. The ball will cause 1 strength 4 hit, 1 strength 3 hit, 1 strength 2 hit and 1 strength 2 hit due to the bounce effect. True giants may be attacked normally by long spears or other weapons. They may be attacked normally whilst they are laying down after the result of a fall for instance. And otherwise, if the attackers are armed with shorter weapons, they can only attack at the giant's feet, causing only half the damage and half the wounds uh, can be recorded. One half wounds can be recorded and added to the normal wounds. A giant pushed back in combat may fall over, roll a d6 on the score of a 6, he falls. Giants cause fear in man sized or smaller enemies, and elves are not affected. Now, the next thing we see here is what is going to be something that is sticking around with giants for, well, basically all of their iterations from now on, as far as I know. I don't know about second or third edition, but giants get different attacks. Uh, because the giants are rather special, their combats are not worked out as normal attacks. Normally they throw a 2 hit and then 2 kill for each attack um, that they have. With giants you roll a dice to discover how many automatic hits you cause and then roll as normal for each hit you see if you score a kill. In combat the true giant, uh, or this is only for true giants, has several possible attack options. Each has a slightly different effect and level of amusement value. A factor important to giants. The giant's weapon skill level uh, makes no difference to this attack, and similarly, the weapon skill level of his opponent makes no difference either. No amount of fancy fending is going to stop a giant who is intent on hitting you with a telegraph. So, yay, we have telegraph in Warhammer 1st Edition. Uh, this is just to show you that the lore has not yet solidified because we not only have telegraphs and we also have Italy in 1st edition. This is in the official rules, so yeah, that's a thing and nobody can change my mind on that. 
Um, for example, though Glutork, the giant, swings his club against a regiment of attacking dwarves, he causes 1d6 plus 2 automatic hits at strength 3, which is the standard number for this attack option as explained below. The dice turn up a 4, so he has caused 6 hits. Yeah, that's how 1d6 plus 2 works. So, <clears throat> the attacks here are Stomp and Grind, which is against opponents under 10 feet tall only. Uh, the giant treads on his target and, and, and grinds on it, like basically pushing out a cigarette. Uh, creatures with a strength value of 3 or more are immune. Smaller creatures receive 1d3 hits at a strength of 4 with no saving throws. Uh, no saving throw for armor, so war saves still work. <coughs> Pick up and throttle, uh, which uh, works against opponents under 10 feet tall. Um, yeah, I think this speaks for itself. Uh, it, giant picks something up and tries to uh, squash it. Um, the let's see, the victim may attempt to escape. Uh, that you do by striking once against the giant's hand as it descends, which is an extra attack out of turn. And if the struggling victim causes a wound, then the giant must drop him. Um, causing one strength one hit as he hits the ground and if the victim fails to cause a wound then the giant squeezes and the rest is too horrible to think about but results in the automatic death for the person concerned so this is basically just the same as what it is in in sixth edition and fifth edition and later editions um a giant can pick something up and then uh, you you try to make an attack to fend off the giants picking you up and if you do so then uh, he doesn't pick you up, but if you fail, then you are squashed. The next one is pick up and throw. Also for opponents under 10 foot. Um, this is another popular attack option, which a giant of more for giants of more athletic disposition. Giant picks up the victim in the same way as in two above. Uh, all of these are numbers, so this is number three, the last one was number two. And if he uh, doesn't escape, then he may throw him back into his regiment, causing one strength 3 hit on him and 1d6 strength 2 hits on the regiment. Then we get pick up and eat. Uh, again, victim may try to attack, fence it off. Uh, the unfortunate victim, faced with the oncoming maw of the unhygienic giant, may have yet another attack. So you get two attacks to fight off this one. Uh, this time against the face of the giant. Uh, again, if he scores a wound, he's instantly dropped for 1 strength 2 hit on him and 1d6 strength 1 hits on the rest of the regiment. Victims who have their heads bitten off are killed instantly. So, yeah, for entertainment value, uh, definitely pick him up and eat him. But for game purposes, uh, I don't see why you would do this unless you hope to get a wound on the second attempt where you do at least some damage on the regiment. Um, yeah, this option seems to be a little bit redundant. Number five, pick up and stuff into bag. That's one that has stuck around as well. Um, again, against opponents under 10 feet tall, the giant picks up one victim. You escape uh, if you uh, do that. And failure to escape means being stuffed into the sack, bag or pocket for the rest of the game. The captive escapes automatically if the giant is killed. That's also exactly the same as it was in 6th edition and the editions before and after that. A jump up and down, another familiar name, also against opponents under 10 foot tall. 
Jai may jump up and down on top of troops in combat. The resulting carnage can be quite devastating. There's a 10% chance that any giant attempting to jump up and down will fall over immediately. Um, you have to use a stagger and fall chart, which we'll be, we will be getting to. The chance increases to 50% of the giant's attempt to jump up and down for two or more moves consecutively. Uh, with an additional 10% chance of instantly expiring in an apoplectic frenzy. Which kills it outright, uses the and fall chart, and a regiment jumped on must save against terror until the end of combat. Uh, at the end of combat, you cause d12 automatic hits at strength 4, which I guess is nothing to sneeze at. Unless, of course, you roll a 1, which would be a little bit of a shame, but yeah. Um, Swing with Club, also a familiar name, 1d6 plus 2 automatic hits at strength 3. Thump with club, uh, this is, uh, let's see, one automatic hit at strength 6, and there's a 10% chance the weapon will be embedded firmly in the ground, take an entire combat round, or otherwise unengaged to free. Yelling and bawling, another familiar one, against opponents under 10 foot tall only, the last two weren't. Uh, this is an attack option, which is a great favorite with the more jovial giants. Giant bends down until his face is only a few yards away from his assailant. He then proceeds to yell as loudly as he can, bombarding his foes with a frightening blast of sound and rancid air. The air blast has the effect of making it impossible for the enemy to fight at all that combat round. In addition, they must save against terror. The giant player must announce that the giant is going to yell before the enemy attack. And then number 10 is Edbutt, which is only against opponents over 10 foot tall or that are flying. If your opponent is tall enough or is attacking you from the air, then you may opt for this useful combat mode. The giant causes d3 minus 1 automatic hits, so there's a chance that he will miss altogether. Hits cost are strength attack 3. Um, yeah, I don't know why you would ever choose this one over, for example, Swing with Club. Which gives you also strength 3 hits. Strength 3 automatic hits. Uh, but that's 1d6 plus 2 and 1d3 minus 1 is a little bit less than that. So yeah, only for for uh, um, fluff purposes would you use this one I think uh, I'm glad that in later editions they changed this a little bit to be more effective so let's talk about true giants true giant generation to generate your giant you deal with each of the characteristics in turn movement web skill etc for each characteristic, roll a d6 and then read down the appropriate column to give the score. Some scores involve extra dice throws. Oh, goody. So, uh, for the move, if you roll a uh, 1, you get a movement of 7. 2, 3, 4, 5 gives you a move of 8. And 6 gives you a move of 9 inches. Weapon skill has a similar chart. If, if you roll a 1, you have weapon skill 2. Uh, if you roll a 2... To 5 you get 3 and if you roll 6 you get web skill 4. Bow skill is uh, 1 on a 1, 2 on a 2 or 3, uh, 3 on a 4 or 5 and 4 on a 6. 
which matters if you throw rocks, I guess, or bowling balls. Uh, toughness is E on a 1 to 4 and F on a 5 or 6. Wounds is uh, 6 on a 1, 7 on a 2, 8 on a 3 or 4, 9 on a 5 and 10 on a 6. Initiative is a 1 on a 1, 2 and uh, three, uh, 2 on a 2 and 3 and 3 on a 4 plus. Attack, 2 attacks on a 1, 3 attacks on a 2 and a 3 and 4 attacks on a 4 plus. Your intelligence is uh, 1 with an asterisk, which means that intelligence level 1 giants are subject to stability with a further 10% chance of being subject to stability minus 1. That is really dim. So uh, intelligence is uh, 1 on a 1 to 2 with an extra 10% chance, 2 on a 3, 3 on a 4, 4 on a 5 and 5 on a 6. Cool is 2 on a 1 with also a little note, a little dagger sign there. Giants with a cool of 2 must make a compulsory throw for frenzy whenever any enemy approach within charge reach or fire missiles at them. Giants with, uh, oh, that's about willpower. Giants with willpower 1 or 2 take, uh, then it goes up again, next column. Take double damage from magical attacks and giants with willpower levels of 10 are magically resistant. So for your cool, uh, just to finish this off, it's uh, basically d6 plus 1, what you get on your cool. And your willpower is uh, d6 on a roll of a 1, d6 plus 1 on a roll of a 2, d6 plus 2 on a 3, d6 plus 3 on a 4, d6 plus 4 on a 5. And on a 6, you just straight up get willpower 10. So if you use loaded dice for this one and you roll a whole row of six sixes, you get a giant that's movement 9, web skill, bullet, bow skill 4, toughness F, wounds 10, initiative 3, 4 attacks, uh, intelligence 5, and cool 7, and willpower 10. Uh, now, this is just the maximum, so you probably won't get that, but still, uh, it would be nice to fantasize about. Then we get a whole section about giants and alcohol. It's a sad fact that giants have a very irresponsible nature towards alcohol. Quite why this should be is uncertain. The elves believes it's due to the environmental factors and widespread social and economic deprivation. Whatever the cause, it is certainly true that a great many giants spend a great deal of time utterly and obviously drunk. Well, I think this hits a little bit close to home for a lot of uh, people, maybe especially in the 80s. Uh, giants with a willpower of three, are, three or less are subject to alcoholism plus one, which there is a 10% chance any other giant may be subject to alcoholism. If you are subject to alcoholism, uh, a giant will start a battle drunk 25% of the time. Even if sober, he will take every opportunity to drink that he can, stopping at nothing to imbibe as much as possible before passing out. Drunken giants be have very little control over their attack options, so instead of the player choosing how they will attack while it dies, the result is inappropriate for the enemy type roll again. You get a d10, uh, and depending on what you get is basically the attacks listed above. So uh, I'm going to go over them again, but the those 10 attacks, you roll a d10, and that's what you... Uh, what you get. Uh, so I guess that's also for, um, for that, that goes for drunken giants that you have to roll and for true giants you have to 
you can you get to choose and now it makes a lot more sense that you get a couple of attacks there that are not as good as some of the others the next special rule is the giant's stagger and fold chart giants are clumsy this chart will enable you to simulate that most common occurrence the giant stagger and fall a stagger consists of the giant lurching about in a random direction treading on people and walking into trees etc giants may stagger for many reasons strong and giants stagger automatically on the d6 roll of a six made at the beginning of their movement phase a giant who is skilled in combat may also stagger about in his death throes this happens on the roll of a four five or six on the d6 how to simulate a giant staggering you see a picture of a a giant there with his legs crossed and a bottle at his mouth leaning on his club and the face of a clock is around him so 12 is at the head 6 is at the feet and uh well the giant is facing you so 3 is the the left hand of the giant and uh, 9 is the right hand of the giant uh, consult this chart you will see that it resembles a clock face with 12 being the direction which the giant is facing roll d20 to establish the direction in which your giant is going to stagger so uh, if you are familiar with uh, if you have listened to the artillery review i did starting from third edition you know that there's something similar going on in third edition a clock face uh, you roll a d20 and if you roll a 20 to 20 in this case it is counted as a 12 so there's more chance that you will stagger forwards a stagger is a distance 1d6 inches and a giant staggering through a unit causes 1d6 strength to hits um, and please keep in mind that when you read strength 2 and strength 1 in this edition uh, it's it's not as bad as it is in later editions uh, because the toughness class of most things will be hit uh, the, the toughness class of, of say the average human is a b which is a 4 plus against strength 2 so Strength 2 in this edition corresponds to strength 3 in later editions, more or less, not exactly. Falling giants are downright dangerous. Dead giants always fall after staggering if appropriate, and drunken giants may fall after staggering on the d6 throw of a 6. To simulate a falling giant, use the illustration of a fallen giant next to the article's title as a template photocopy it and cut it out that's the one with the the halfling that goes splat and if you um have it the giant it looks a little bit like the one that you got in the fourth or fifth edition uh, box set um not exactly i believe but yeah this, uh, this this giant has his arms spread out and his legs spread out i believe the other one only has the uh, has a leg spread out so so that's a bit of a y shape an inverse y shape um let's see where were we uh, use the stagger chart to determine the direction which is what we just talked about and that's the same thing so uh, 13 to 20 is counted as a 12 and now use the fallen giant template to determine who has been hit by the plummeting giant uh place the feet of the template by the feet of the model with the head in the direction of the fall all models completely covered by the templates receive two automatic strength four hits oh that's very painful models partly covered receive one automatic strength two hits a drunken giant falling over may knock himself out or just lapse into unconsciousness for a d6 on a six uh 
a score of 6 and the giant is unconscious for 1d6 turns. A drunken giant attempting to rise takes a, comp a complete move phase to stand up and must then roll again to see if he staggers. Yeah, that's fun, so you can then fall over again. Um, then you get the giant attack option summary chart, which is uh, basically gives you the attack, the hits, uh, the strength and notes. And uh, then there's an example there about a Drow Glutorg, the one that we read about before. A true giant who is very drunk. And then it's, uh, it goes on to, to show you what he does. So yeah, that's how you use giants in first edition according to uh, Mr. Rick Priestley. Like I said, you see the basis of the giant already here in first edition, which is very cool if you are a veteran warmer player to see. Um, before I started out on this series, I thought Old Hammer, one of first, second, and third edition, is basically a whole different kind of game, uh, something that doesn't even closely resemble say uh, Hero Hammer or, or Middle Hammer, the later editions of Warhammer. But it turns out that there is a lot in here from the profiles to, to some of these special rules that are um, very similar, that have stayed more or less the same or sometimes exactly the same throughout most of the editions. Uh, a lot of things have also changed quite a lot. Uh, there's, there's definitely a reason for that. Some things that work, some things that don't work. And even though you playtest, or at least I assume this has been playtested, you will find some things that will not work, which is probably why Forces of Fantasy came out so quickly after this first edition box was released. Now, next time we are going to take a look at some of the previews for forces of fantasy there are a few adverts in white dwarf that take a look at some of the armies that are in forces of fantasy um, that's what we're going to do next time or at least in the next uh, issue in this series i don't know if that's going to be the next episode or not um, and then we are also going to take a look at forces of fantasy itself i believe forces of fantasy was released in February or March of 1984. If somebody knows the exact date, please let me know. But that's what I could deduce from basically looking at White Dwarf. So I'm going to use White Dwarf as my guideline here. And the fun part is that in the January and February art, uh, issue of White Dwarf, we see uh, adverts that contain the rules and and. What we will see then is that these are just rules. There's no context here. There's no, hey, look, we're getting forces of fantasy. It's just there's, there's an advert and the advert just gives you rules that are for uh, the dwarves and for dark elves. We're going to take a look at them. I'm not sure if these are exactly the same as they will be in forces of fantasy, if these are even included in forces of fantasy. If they are, I'll probably just mention them and then skip over it and move straight on to the Forces of Fantasy box for the next episode. But, uh, well, since I'm very busy and I live uh, by the day and sometimes even by the hour, 
I cannot guarantee you yet what will happen in the next episode exactly. So um, I will do my research before then, but I don't have the time to read through all the editions of Warhammer Fantasy before starting this entire series. So this is as much a journey of discovery as it is for uh, as much a journey of discovery for me as it is for you probably assuming that you were not around in this era like me um i wasn't even born yet i'm from uh, december 1985 so uh for the first and and part of the second edition of warhammer fantasy i wasn't even around yet and for a lot of the time probably up to fourth edition maybe even fifth edition i was too young to have uh, known of the game and, and enjoyed the game if I had known of it. I only got to Warhammer Fantasy at the tail end of 5th edition and near the start of 6th edition was when I started to get my own armies, uh, my orcs and goblins that were my first army. So yeah, that's what uh, there's a little bit about the, the background for where I was um uh, why, why this is a journey of discovery for me this this is just uh, something that I I never bothered to look at not because it didn't interest me because I I, I bought the boxes because it I, I well I want to I'm, I'm a bit of a collector so I want to have my collection complete at some point but also um, because I I never had the opportunity to play first, second, or third edition games of Warhammer Fantasy. Nobody in my direct vicinity that I know played them back in the day or, or plays them now. I did witness a game of third edition at the Dutch Old Hammer Con. It will be interesting to see if we can maybe do some. Uh, Something with the other older editions there as well for the next edition. But I'm, I've also been asked to think about some other stuff there. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, there's probably not going to be too much time for me to do something like that. Uh, I guess the moral of this story is to use my time machine and go back to the same point in time multiple times. And then play multiple games at the same event. But that will probably cause some people to look at me in a weird way and maybe cause some time paradoxes i don't know yet i haven't gone into that myself so yeah uh, not going to do that just to be on the safe side well that's it everybody for this episode i wish you all a great week thanks for listening and of course i also wish you a safe journey back to 2023 Thanks for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard. Know ye now, the time of mortals has come to an end.